Well, Merry Christmas. That's the response that you're supposed to give right there. You guys awake? 11 o'clock? We will see. I'm going to be honest with you right up front as we start. Uh, this is a different Christmas Eve service than we've probably done before. Uh, we're not wearing suits. We're wearing t-shirts with logos on them, and you'll understand about that in just a moment. Uh, we, we don't have snow cones to hand you on the way out the door. Nobody's making a snowman. There's no magician doing tricks up front. I got a little flack last year because some people thought our Christmas Eve service was too gimmicky or too entertaining. Maybe you liked it too much. God forbid. So if you walk out of here, you feel a little beat up on, come to me. I will give you names. You can blame them. Tell you where they live. It's all okay. Uh, now, do you know that Element has a logo? Uh, this is it right here. You know what it means? Not much, really. Uh, we, we decide on the name Element because one of the definitions for Element is the surroundings necessary for life. We believe first and foremost that that is Jesus Christ and then the community he places us within. And so the name Element, that's why we chose the name. We had some graphic designers who thought, you know, branding's really cool. So they made us the logo, which... We're more about Jesus than anything else. That's what Christmas is about, so that's what we go with. As you came in tonight, you got a t-shirt. And on this t-shirt, there's a little 3.0 logo on one side. That's the company that donated the, the printing. On the other side, there's a logo for One Way Board Shop. One Way Board Shop donated all the t-shirts that you guys got tonight. Now, One Way Board Shop has a logo. It looks like this. And essentially, if you ask them, they will tell you that it means that there is one way. It is Jesus Christ. But it also represents their company. So if you're going to go buy a board... Go to one-way board shop because they gave you a free T-shirt. That's how that works. Everyone is looking for just the right logo. Companies will spend millions of dollars to find one logo that will communicate what they offer in a memorable and compelling way. Let me show you some, see if you know where these are from. What's this one right here? Let's go Tiger Woods. Right? It's a little checkmark-looking symbol. We call it a swoosh. Swoosh. Supposed to be. Uh, it's actually a stylized version of the Greek statue Winged Victory. It sits in the Louvre Museum right now. Uh, the word Nike itself comes from the Greek word for victory, so their logo is a swoosh. Their brand then is success. What's this one? So even if you don't know, it's like Apple, and you're right. See, it's like in church. Every answer is like Jesus. It's like, oh, you must be right. Now, there used to be a, a story that floated around that Apple came about because of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But actually, if you read Steve Jobs' book, he used to work at an apple farm, and that's where he kind of got the name. But their logo has come to represent the meeting of technology and intelligence at our fingertips. So their logo is an apple. Their brand is smart, hip, and cool. What's this one? Yeah. Uh, you should have been here at the 7 o'clock service, and all the little kids are here. It's like, McDonald's! They get, like, the, just the, the picture of it makes them, like, scream with delight. It's, it's kind of crazy. Now, as bad at art as I am, I can draw this, and people usually recognize what it is, because uh, this gets recognized everywhere. The golden arches, every continent on the planet. It means joy and gratification and cholesterol and the Happy Meal. Yay! It's, so their logo is a pair of arches, and their brand then is... Pleasure. Oh, what's this one? Mercedes. Wow. You're like the loudest service. Like Mercedes. Maybe it's Christmas. <laughs> wow. You got, okay. Now, the, the Mercedes-Benz logo, it's a, it's a three-pointed star inside of a circle. Now, when I draw this, people think I'm trying to draw the peace symbol. 
because uh, my drawing is, is really bad. But nobody's selling peace, right? The company, lo- they chose this three-pointed star to represent their engines, their engine's dominion in land and sky and sea. And so their logo is a three-pointed star in a circle. Their, their brand is power. Now, all four logos, not elements or one-way board shots, but all the other four logos I've shown you are known around the planet. But none of them is the most famous logo the world has ever seen. One symbol has been around for centuries. You see it on tombstones and t-shirts and chapels and necklaces. It's the most famous logo the world has ever known. Do you know what it is? That's a cross. There you go. Now, because the cross has been around for so long, people often look at the cross and forget what it even means. There's a story about a woman who walks into a jewelry store and she asks for a cross and the clerk replies, well, do you want an empty one or one with a little man on it? Well, but the truth is, the cross was not empty. And you probably say, well, hey, it's Christmas Eve, why are we talking about the cross? I will get to the baby in a moment. But the early church never divorced the idea of the birth and the death and the ultimate resurrection of Christ from each other. So this is not the sermon about the Ricky Bobby baby, golden fleece diapers, Jesus, 10.8 ounce. That's not what this is about. In order to talk about the birth, you've got to talk about the why. Why did Jesus come? And that is the cross. Crosses were a way of killing people. They were devised by the Persians, popularized by Alexander the Great. The cross was perfected under the Romans as a means of deterring rebellion. It was intended to be both painful and humiliating. Our English word excruciating actually comes from the Latin word for crucifixion. Jesus himself in Matthew 16, 24 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So it is this image then that represents a movement associated with Jesus. But you really got to think how strange this really is. In its beginnings, this little movement called Christianity struggles under persecution. They want people to follow Jesus. They want them to be committed to what God calls them to. And the logo they use to represent this message is not an apple. It it is not a Mercedes-Benz logo. It's, It's nothing that represents success or knowledge or pleasure or power. They choose a logo that is universally understood to represent scandal, failure, and death. I mean, who would choose as the means of execution as their company logo? Imagine the electric company hires a marketing guru and says, Oh, I got a great one. We'll make an electric chair. We'll put a sign that says the power's always on. It would just be dumb. When Jesus invited his followers to take up their cross, it was not a call to annihilation. It was a call to spiritual greatness, being reborn as he was born as a baby in the flesh. Human beings were then offered a cause worth living for, worth dying for, worth being resurrected for. God is reconciling all things to himself. The cross was not empty. There was a man on it. And now you and I have something worth living for and worth dying for and worth being resurrected for, something to actually be reborn for. And it is more than success and more than smarts and more than pleasure and more than power. The God of the cross and the God of the manger is renewing and creating all things to flourish through the power of his sacrificial love. And we are invited to be a part of that. And that is the message of Christmas. Now, sometimes we hear this go, oh, yeah, I'll follow God and God will make all my problems go away. Everything's just going to be wonderful. That'll be a great Christmas gift. God, just give me that right there. But if God did that, took all your problems away, you would die from boredom. It is in working to solve problems, to overcome challenges that we become the people God intends for us to be. Let me give you an example of this. In the Old Testament, there's a story of a guy named Caleb. 
Caleb is one of 12 scouts that are sent into the promised land. Basically, the, the, the Israelites are in slavery for hundreds of years. God brings them out of slavery, takes them to a land, says, I'm going to give you this promised land. So they take 12 scouts, they send them in to go check out this promised land. Ten of these scouts come back from this assignment and say, it's impossible. There's no way we can do this. We should just return to slavery in Egypt and call it a day. Only two of the people, Caleb and Joshua, trusted God and said, no way, we can certainly do this. Now, God has words of condemnation for those who wanted to shrink back, but he had very different words for Joshua and Caleb. In Numbers 32, 12, God said that they followed him fully. Regarding Caleb, God goes even further and says in Numbers 14, 24, that Caleb has a different spirit. That because of Israel's unbelief, Caleb then has to spend the next 40 years of his life wandering through the wilderness. Even though Caleb had a different spirit, even though he followed God fully, he still had to wander through the wilderness with those who failed to trust God to fulfill his promise. So Caleb starts out his life, spends the first 40 years of his life in slavery and captivity in Egypt. Then he gets to enter the promised land for a few days, following God fully, and now spends the next 40 years of his life wandering in the wilderness. This is really the first of three stories you find about Caleb in the scriptures. And after this, for the rest of the book of Numbers, the entire book of Deuteronomy, the first half of the book of Joshua, the only time Caleb is mentioned is when Moses retells the story about Joshua and Caleb's faith and says, oh, remember when? Wasn't that so nice that they were like that? And you're kind of left to wonder, what has become of Caleb during these 40 years? Has he become bitter? Has he lost sight of God's promise? By the time the Israelites actually cross the Jordan River and go into the promised land, he is 80 years old. And another five years pass beyond that before the various tribes of Israel are giving their allotted land in the land to occupy. Caleb describes this in Joshua 14.7. He says this, I was 40 years old when Moses sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. That's how I picture it in my head. Just, whatever. And I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But the others who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Do you know, if you have a negative attitude and small faith when you're 40, there's a good chance you will not have negative and small faith when you're 85. There's a good chance you won't make it to 85 because you'll be dead. The recent studies have actually shown, they looked at people in a religious community and found that 90% of the most optimistic, faith-filled people were still alive at age 85. Only 34% of the most negative and pessimistic people made it to that age. Another study, the largest of its kind, tracked over 2,000 adults over the age of 65 in the southwestern United States. These are people with faith in God. They have lots of optimism. And so because they believe in God, they end up having better health habits, lower blood pressure, feistier immune systems. They're half as likely to die in the next year than negative people. Because if you trust God, that he sifts all things through his hands before they come to you, you can trust that, you know what, he's going to take care of everything. And when you believe that, you're actually likely to live a decade longer than people with a negative attitude. Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Right there. I don't know if you're happy to hear that. If you're not happy to hear that, you may be in bad shape tonight, all right? <laughs> so 40 years before this, 12 spies, they go out, but only Joshua and Caleb come back and they have faith. They said, no, no, we can do this. God said we can do it, so let's go. The other 10, however, said it can't be done. Let's go back and be slaves in Egypt. 45 years later, Caleb, feisty as ever. You want to guess what happened to the other 10 by then? All dead. Every single one of them. None of them made it to Caleb's age. See, faith is an amazing life giver because Jesus is an amazing life giver. 
So 45 years later, the people have entered the promised land. They've begun to possess it. And in Joshua 13, God tells Joshua, start apportioning the land to the various tribes. And so it's in this context you find the second story about Caleb begins, as I read in Joshua 14.7, the tribe of Judah is being given their allotment in the land. Caleb comes forward with this special request. He wants another challenge. This is his gift to God, God's gift back to him. So he prepares him to the promised land. This is what he says. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And in verse 10 it says, And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old, and I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. I tell you, most 85-year-old guys think this about themselves. I'm as strong as ever have been. So now, give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day, for you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. And it may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Now what you have to understand is the hill country is much more difficult to occupy than flat ground. But this is what Caleb asks for, the hardest challenge. He has to face these people called the Anakites. This is Israel's most formidable opponents. In Numbers 13, the people go in to spy out the land, and they see these Anakites, and that's what freaks them out. They said, we saw the Anakites there. We seem like grasshoppers next to them. In Back to the Future language, this is, they'll kill me. Caleb asked for the hardest enemies in the most dangerous territory. He's 85 years old. We'd be like, okay, Joshua, I like a condo on Shalom Acres. That's what I would like. Give that to me. We will be good. But what Caleb wants is the privilege of a hard assignment. He chose another battle before he checks out. God, give me the hill country. Do you know God has wired us so that our bodies and our minds and our spirits all require challenge? I mean, we flourish, especially when we face challenges for a cause greater than ourselves. We experience God's Spirit most deeply when we focus on things that give Him glory. And then we find challenges that enrich His community. When we cease to be preoccupied with ourselves and our own advancement, challenges undertaken for the greater good bind us to people, but challenges undertaken for the greater good in God's strength bind us to Him. The pursuit of comfort always leads to isolation, and isolation is always terminal. Life is not about comfort. It is about saying, God, I trust you. Give me a challenge. Give me the whole country. Take me where you want me to go, so I become the person you want me to be. In Isaiah 46, 3 and 4, God says, Listen to me, house of Jacob, even to your old age and gray hairs. I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you, and I will carry you. I will sustain you, and I will rescue you. The third story about Jacob, uh, about Caleb, is, is just a little bit anticlimactic after the second story. It occurs in Joshua 15. It's retold in Judges chapter 1. In this story, you see that the Lord was with Caleb, and he did drive the Anakites out of the hill country. He did possess it. Now, after the death of Joshua, God raises up a series of judges to lead Israel. In Judges 3.9, it says, Deliverers for the sons of Israel. Do you know who the first judge that God raised up was? It's not Caleb. It's a guy named Othniel. You know who Othniel was? Caleb's nephew. It's his nephew. See, we so often hear about leaving a legacy behind us after we're gone. Could you ask for a greater legacy than for God to use you to touch people around you, especially your family, and make a gigantic difference in them? What I find even more amazing is this. In 1 Chronicles 2, when Caleb's first wife, Azuba, dies, Caleb marries a woman named Ephrath. Ephrath has a son. His name is Hur. 
H-U-R, not H-E-R, because that would just be mean, right? Her has a son named Salma who had a son named Bethlehem. Now, what significance is Bethlehem? Well, Bethlehem is originally called Bethlehem Ephrath, which is named after his wife and this son. You know where it's located? The hill country. That's where it's located. Caleb is from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. If Caleb had not asked God to give him this hill country, this mountain as a challenge, what would have become of Bethlehem? See, we have no idea how deep and wide God's going to use our imperfect faith. This is Bethlehem. Have you ever heard a Christmas story without the word Bethlehem in it? Of course not, because it's Bethlehem. In the book of Ruth, this is Jesus' ancestor. She comes back into Israel with her mother-in-law. She comes to Bethlehem. Her grandson, King David, was born in Bethlehem. David is anointed king over Israel at Bethlehem. The prophets for hundreds of years talked about the Redeemer, the Restorer, the hope of mankind would come from Bethlehem. Micah 5, 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And in Matthew chapter 2, you see the fulfillment of this. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, it says, Now after Jesus was born in, ding, Bethlehem, of Judea in the days of Herod the king behold wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying where is he who has been born king of the Jews for we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him when Herod the king heard this he was troubled in all Jerusalem with them and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born they told him in Bethlehem of Judea for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The other great birth narrative that we always talk about in the scriptures is in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 16. And it says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Hmm, same region. You know where that is? The hill country of Judea. Oh, wow. Again. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there is with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When Jesus arrives, it is in this city, in this hill country, won by an 85-year-old guy that said, It may be that the Lord is with me. Because there was something special about Caleb. And it's the same thing that is offered to you and I. It is a redeeming faith. It is a hope that goes deeper than what we see with our eyes. It is a call that is greater than what we hear with our ears. It is God coming in the flesh, born in a manger. In John 1, 1, we read these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it goes on a little bit later and says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word that we translate in English as word, like word became flesh, comes from the Greek word logos. You know what word we get from that? Logo. Logo. Jesus, in a sense, is God's logo. It is if God has said, I want my icon, my image, my character, my representation, my will, my symbol to be wrapped up in one single expression, and it is 
Jesus. Jesus is God's logo. And if you want to know what real life can look like when it's lived with the Spirit of God flowing out of you, you can look at Caleb, whose faith leads to Bethlehem that eventually leads to Jesus. You look at Jesus, who ultimately shows what true life is like and invites all of us into that true life. We look at Jesus, who eventually went to a mountain, a hill country called Calvary, and died on a splintered cross just five miles from Bethlehem for the sin of the world that needed to be cleansed, the price that needed to be paid. This was finally and fully paid in Jesus. And I doubt in Caleb's wildest dreams he ever thought what God would actually do. And for you and I, at the end of the day, we do not have a program or a plan or a platform or a product to help save the world. We have a Savior. That's what we have. We do not point to success and knowledge or pleasure or power. We point to a baby in a manger that led to a cross and ultimately a resurrection. And my question for you tonight is, if you had to make a logo for what your life is, what would it be? What would it be? You know, we give you these, these T-shirts when you come in here because, honestly, we know you're not going to wear these to a formal dinner. I mean, we, we got that, all right? But you may wear it to the beach. You may wear it to work on your car. You may wear it when you walk your dog. You, you may wear it when you mow your lawn, whatever. You know, you may wear it to or just take it and wipe down your counters with it. I don't know, all right? But every time you do something with it, when you wear it, you put it on, you look at it, what I want you to think about is what are you basing your life upon? What are you basing your life upon? Because if it is anything other than Jesus, you totally missed the point of Christmas. Because it's all about Jesus. God creates a desire and a longing in our hearts to be alive with him. To become the people God makes us to be. And when we become those people going through the challenges that we do, we actually begin to help God make his world flourish. He doesn't need us to do that, but he deems to allow us to be part of his work in this world. And that is the life that's available to you every moment of every day. It is the life found in Jesus. This baby who was born in a manger that we celebrate tonight that grew into a man on the cross who mastered sin and his death and mastered death in a tomb and now dispenses life with unrivaled authority. And it is available to you this very moment today, no matter what your situation is. And every week... We invite people to take communion. Every Christmas Eve, we do the same thing, where you break that cracker that reminds us of Christ's body that was broken for us, and you dip it in the wine of the grape juice, remind us of his blood that was shed for you and I. It's a response to what he has done, especially on a day like Christmas Eve, almost Christmas Day. And I will tell you, I think if Caleb was alive 4,085 years later today, I think he would say, Follow God fully because he has given you the strength to make it possible. And I also think he would say to you, Merry Christmas. That's the point. Let's pray. Father, tonight, I do thank you for being a God who has revealed yourself in Jesus Christ. I ask that we'd be a people who stop trying to combine ourselves with everything out there under the sun that is not you. That you would take this night and this time Christmas Eve to remember what you have done and to commit ourselves to you in ways that we never have before. To trust you when when you throw a hill country in front of us because we know that you are with us. Change us and restore us and renew us so that as we live this life we will not be combined with the logo 
but we'll be living our lives fully committed to our great God who has come as a baby in a manger, grew up into a man that died for the sins of mankind and rose from the dead and calls his people to be those who live and walk in his spirit. Father, truly changes this year. And have us understand more fully the grace that you have given to us. Amen.